So, a lot of my uh, PTSD stands for something that I call moral injury, meaning that I've been morally injured by war. That means my soul has been dramatically affected by participating in the process of war. Some people think in order to be wounded from war, you have to, you have to be shot or burned or, or in some way take on a, some type of physical trauma or that you have to participate in combat. But that doesn't line up with what I see most of the time when I'm talking with vets. A lot of vets who are suffering from PTSD never saw combat. They never left the base. Heck, some of them never even left the United States and they still have PTSD. Welcome to How I Embraced the Suck, a podcast where you get to hear from veterans what life in the military is really like. I am your host, Walt, and before we start, you should know that I do not censor the show in any way. You have been warned. On that day, when the two giants fell, we reached out our hands instead of bracing to yell. If we opened our arms instead of pointing our fingers, we could have saved thousands more. Now death still lingers. We could have changed how the world reacts to such acts. Instead, we pulled the trigger, manipulated the facts. If we just asked why instead of how, we could have changed the world. No turning back now. A decade of war for reasons we still do not understand. The killing of man, the training of hands, to execute the plans supported by the people of this land. We make these choices about something we know nothing about. No civilian of this land, born and bred of the privilege of an American, can comprehend the devastation of war. The madness of sending the poor to mop the floors of foreign countries with. When will the American citizen see what America has become? When will the American voter see what America has done? These are the words of Jacob David George, a veteran who lost his fight to moral injury like so many of us do. My name is Dane Tornis and Walt asked me to to do the intro for this episode today. And I am honored to because being an anti-war veteran is the best thing that we can do. And Jake really lived his life like that. He rode his bike town to town, spreading the word and sharing his story. Even though Jake's no longer with us, I believe that he will still impact this world. And I would encourage you to go to Jacob David george.org spelled exactly like it sounds and check out his music which can also be found on spotify soundcloud and youtube uh, where you can watch his concerts and he has a bunch of writing on his website where there's also a book available that's that's free for veterans so go check it all out it's great music it's really good writings and 
share it with your friends. Again, it is jacobdavidgeorge.org. Enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen, soldiers heart. Okay, so uh, I'm a three-tour veteran of the war in Afghanistan, Arkansas native, uh, and I also uh, struggle with PTSD. And a lot of this set is going to focus on uh, PTSD as I have observed it in myself and veterans around the country on this over 8,000-mile bike ride. So usually when we're on the road and when we're playing music, what we like to do is open up with an army cadence. And if you don't know what an army cadence is, it's one of those chants that we sing at about five o'clock in the morning as we're marching around, hundreds of us singing and gasping for air and trying to figure out how to march at the same time. And it's, it's quite funny to watch, but, but it fills you full of the spirit. I don't know if you've ever been singing in church before, but sometimes you're singing with like a hundred people and you feel full and everything's awesome and the spirits are high. And, that's what it feels like when you sing these in the military. And it felt really familiar and comfortable to me, other than some of the words. <laughs> so we like to start off with these to kind of give you insight into uh, the psychological processes that go into preparing someone to be a soldier and to go to war. So we're going to try to get you to sing this with us, if you will, please. So you'll notice there'll be a line that we repeat over and over, and it goes, and it won't be long till I get on back home. So feel free to chime in and help us sing that.
I went back to Afghanistan in 2011 to, thank you. These are my beautiful nieces over here, by the way. And uh, I dug in with Afghan youth, mostly uh, war orphans. Uh, I spent about a month there really getting a taste of what Afghanistan looks like from the other side of the gun. And I really understood the fear behind the trigger. I just didn't know what it felt like to be on the business end of the weapon. And there was a lot of things I noticed when I went back immediately that I didn't pick up the first three times I went there. Like, within a day of being there, I saw these beautiful mulberry trees all over the place. I was very impressed. And I started to think about that. Oh my gosh, I didn't see a single mulberry tree the first three times I came to this country. I had, the, my lenses were so fogged with war that I, I just didn't. I bet I leaned up against the mulberry tree and took a nap while I was there and didn't even know it. So through the course of uh, processing what happened while I was over there, I talked to a lot of other Afghan vets, and they said that they'd like to go back too. Because some of what I experienced was very healing. It was good for my soul. What these boys did for me was, was amazing. I'm still trying to figure it out. So I came home last fall and I said, Adam, I really need some help. I want to write an album of music about my experiences in Afghanistan and, and about PTSD. And we're going to use it as a fundraiser to take a group of Afghan vets back to Afghanistan. Because we want to use our stories and our struggle uh, as a method of payment for this healing process. So that's how Adam got involved in this. I, it's, it's true. Uh, seen, I want to tell you something about Possum. I've known Possum for the better part of 10 years. But uh, in very short stints, I knew Possum in passing for a month or two, and we'd hang out where we had the best time, you know. And then three years would go by, I wouldn't see him. And we'd, we'd all of a sudden see each other again. Well, he'd be a whole other person. I mean, I'd be a whole other person too, you know. And, uh, and well, we'd hang out for a couple months, have the best time. And then, you know, a few more years would go by, and we get together. Well, that kept happening however many times. Well, this last time that I saw a possum, I was on the square. He comes, um, excuse me, Jacob. <laughs> look, I t everybody, look, all right. I told myself I wasn't going to do that, and I already did it twice. <laughs> and I just started talking. Anyways, I saw the man on the square. <laughs> and I want to tell you something. He was a man. And, and he was a man that knew what he wanted in life, that knew what he needed to do in life, and was, uh, uh, I guess you could say, taking the bull by the horns. Uh, and it was the first time I'd ever seen him like that. And it was, uh, it was a beautiful experience to see the, all those different transformations through the better part of a decade uh, and, and to see this, uh, what he is now. And it's a very beautiful man. And he asked me, oh, hey, I got these songs I want to write. I said, yeah, man, anytime. You know, I was excited to hang out with him. And I didn't really think much about it. You know, oh, yeah, we'll play some songs, we'll write some songs. And then when we went through it, uh, through last winter, it was, um, it changed my life as a songwriter, as an artist, and it changed my life on a very personal level. You know, I came, into, came out of that a whole new man, a changed man. And uh, 
uh, it was a very beautiful experience to be involved in, I have to be honest with you. And very proud to have been involved in it, you know. And I told, I told him earlier, I said, hey, listen, we got to get together so we don't talk for five hours tonight, because we can talk for five hours, you know, on the mic. So here I'm already hogging it all. So go, no, go, no, go. it's good. We, we intentionally didn't plan anything, so we could just go through. Because there's some things we haven't talked about yet. We want to talk about them in front of a group of people so everyone gets to hear the power that went into this process and how it transformed us as men. Uh-huh. So I met Adam. This album's titled Soldier's Heart, by the way, which is the Civil War term for post-traumatic stress disorder. And Adam and I met in a building down in Fort Smith called the Schoolhouse Apartments. And it's this really big, beautiful building. It's it is a nice. very beautiful building. So one day I was down in uh, their apartment, and uh, we, he said I play guitar, and I was like, well, I'm trying to play banjo. Let's get together and play some music. And... Uh, so we did, and that's the first place we played music. Mm-hmm. And uh, here we are now with this album, but, but uh, there's a really important part about that building. That building, the foundation of that building was used as a hospital during the Civil War. Whoa. And we actually didn't put all those pieces together until a car ride about a week ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this... Uh, this first song, this is on the album, it's called uh, Jimmy Freeman, and my niece is going to join me for this one. Is that good? Okay. So this song's about, it's about running into people in unlikely places.
say goodbye to Jimmy and the guys. And I went to El Paso to cut my teeth. And it seemed like every quarter turn had another hot lesson waiting to be learned. And the law was there to help me get it right. Oh, well, then I met a man who gave me a hand. He said his name was old Uncle Sam. So I hopped on a plane to scratch my itchy feet. And off the war went with too much pride. And my next door neighbor's son from Danville, Arkansas, it's got about 2,000 people in it, happened to be up there. Boy, they made fun of us. Give JC another round of applause. I haven't seen Jimmy since that. He gave me his prize machete because he didn't know if he could take it back home with him. We were only crossing paths for about a week. I was going to be there for a week, and he was only going to be there for another another week. So it was a very Strange run in, but he gave me his big old machete. 
and uh, they call it an Arkansas toothpick, by the way. <laughs> if you don't know, I'm missing front teeth, so the joke is it's a knife big enough to pick your teeth. I got a cold yesterday, uh, so I'm going to be drinking a lot of water through this evening. This next song is a piece of work uh, by a soldier on the battlefield in Afghanistan. And I read this poem, and I was very struck by the insights that this shares and to why people fight and how people fight and the accepted mortality of fighting in war. So I'd really like for you to let this sink in, really, really dig into this song. And try to imagine yourself getting ready to go through this. Prayer. 
Now, I left a part of that story out, and I only like to share it after I sing it. But that was a poem written by a member of the Taliban. When I read that, I was very struck by what I read because that could have been written by anyone I served with. And I feel like it gave me some real insight into the heart of the enemy and how there isn't a whole lot of difference between farmers over there defending their land and farmers over here defending their land. This is something that was reinforced over and over for me when I went back to Afghanistan in 2011. And this song, actually, the one we're about to play, I'd like to talk about it before I tell the story, actually, if you don't mind. I don't mind. This is, this is the first song we did, isn't it? Uh, this is the first song that we did. Uh, uh, I... Um, Possum said, well, how, is it, how is this going to work for best for you? You know, I'm sorry. It's okay. You guys caught it long before I caught it. I'm sorry. This lovely man sitting next to me. He says, uh, you know, how do you, how, what's best for you? How do you want it? I said, look, I got three kids, a job, and a wife, and I'm running all that. You know, I got to do this, and I got to do that. I said, you know, you just... We'll get together when we get together. You tell me a story, and then I'll go and come up with whatever I can come up with, hand it to you, and you can take it and run. Do with it what you want. And then we'll move on to the next one, because I only have a limited amount of time. And plus, I was leaving the country in like two months from us starting this project, you know. And, uh, and so we had a very limited amount of time. And uh, so the first, uh, the first story he tells me, we meet there somewhere at the square. I don't know. We're walking around, and he tells me the story, and I take notes on the story. And at first, when he told me the story, I thought, how in the world am I going to make this a song? This is the craziest thing I'd ever heard, you know? And uh, that was my first insight, because I hadn't talked to him in three years. I didn't know what he was up to. I mean, I knew he was on his bike riding around, but the whole going to Afghanistan and all that stuff, I had absolutely really no idea. So to hear, the, you know, this story that came directly from somebody in Afghanistan, he says, I'm going to make this a song. And I thought, oh my gosh, how, I don't, you know... Uh, I'm going to write a kind of a folky song <laughs> in, in place of somebody else. But, you know, I, after the conversation was over and we, wanna, we went on, it, it dawned on me immediately, uh, you know, well, it just, need to be, it just needs to be sung as though that person was singing the song, as though it was that person in Afghanistan on some farm somewhere, you know, this is his song uh, that he's singing. And, and that's kind of... That set the stage, I think, for the for the rest of the songs that we did on this album. I, don't you? I think that it. Yeah, that this was really intense when he came back with this, and the first time he's, y'all have heard Adam sing before, right? He's probably one of the most beautiful singers I've heard in my life. Yeah. And, <laughs> and he comes back. He's like, "Here it is," Ooh! and I'm like, oh, "I can't sing that song. Are you kidding?" <laughs> There's no way. I said, sure you can, sure you can. You just got to, you know, open up your throat. It's fine. Yeah, he did. He actually coached me. He changed how I perform as a musician. It changed me as a singer. One of the key things he told me was like, remember, you remember how you would sing at the top of your lungs at church? Because we both grew up in church. We grew up in a Baptist church in Danville. And uh, he was like, sing it like you're in church. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> 
I can do that. I had packed that that voice of that person away long ago, but I really unpacked it to to dig into this album, and it really changed me. So I went through the process of learning this song, singing it over and over, and uh, I couldn't sing it through without crying. Uh, and finally, one day, I sat down and I was like, "Look, I'm going to sing this song over and over until I can do it without crying. Make it all the way through." It took me five hours. But what I realized the days after this and going through this with the rest of this music was that that was a profound healing technology. There was a serious catharsis that went into doing that. And once I had sang that song out and locked it down, a part of me felt a little little different, a little lighter. My load had gotten a little bit lighter. So that's one of the amazing gifts that that Adam gave me. Uh, through working on this project. It, it really was, I could, I, knew, I mean, I know I'll say it a thousand more times, but it, it really was a life-changing experience for me just to go through, I mean, he had a healing process that he went through, and I had, a, you know, I had a very similar healing process that I went through that just, it just changed me as a man. It was very fascinating to go through and lovely to go through. It's something I would have never been able to go through had I not known this man, you mm-hmm. know. So I hope y'all don't mind us just loving each other. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna get a little goofy. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's just gonna get better and better. <laughs> so I'll tell you the story behind this song. And this is what I told Adam in a nutshell. It was about midway through the delegation in, in Afghanistan, and uh, a little side note: when I went back. Uh, my mom's now uh, ex-husband. Sorry, mom. <laughs> he he got deployed to Afghanistan the same month I went back to do peace work. He's in the navy. He'd already been in Iraq. He'd been the public relations uh, liaison at Guantanamo Bay. If you could imagine doing that job. Basically, they tell you the truth, and then you have to tell the the, the public something else. So. Uh, Basically, we went over there at the same time, so that was that was very interesting to go through because my mom started having to deal with it, like PTSD and all these things when he came. Actually, why I was over there, uh, and that that helped yeah, in us. Between deployments, and yeah. yeah, he's also a federal law enforcement officer, so he get he's gotten it from a lot of different angles. <laughs> so I, this was about midway through, and. Uh, the boys were like, Jacob, we got to take you somewhere today. And uh, I didn't know if I was excited about that or not because I'd been pretty worn down. I'd just been there for a couple of weeks, but it was a lot to go through. And there was no other vets there with me. Uh, one was there for a couple of days, but, but for the most part, I was on my own. And uh, they said, well, we're going to go to a landmine museum today. And I thought, oh, great. <laughs> I was an explosives expert in the Army. And uh, I'd spent my fair share of time around explosives in Afghanistan. And I wasn't too psyched about standing in a room full of them, but uh, I did it. So we get to this, we're going to this building, and, and uh, we arrive in this building. It's not much bigger than this room, actually, but quite a bit smaller. And... Uh, Outside the building, they have what the Afghan youth peace volunteers, that's what they call themselves, 
called the, the Tombstones of Empires. They had uh, Russian tanks out there and, and Russian MiGs, which are fighter jets from the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan through the 80s. Their whole country's littered in, in war. And uh, we walked inside, and the first person in the door is this really hard-faced Afghan man, very serious. And he looks at us. He's the only person in there. He welcomes us to his museum. He takes us around his museum and tells us all these harrowing acts of Afghans pulling these explosives out of the ground. Uh, and how he knew a lot of them. He was a supervisor on a demining team. And uh, it was just heartbreaking because, you know, I'm a farmer. I come from a farming family. We grew up raising chickens. And uh, to have to listen to them talking about pulling these things out of the ground was, was, it was devastating. But it was also very inspiring. It's a very brave thing to do. They don't have fancy equipment. They do it with sticks. It takes a lot of grit. So we get back to the door of the museum, and there's just a room basically with tables with explosives everywhere. And he goes, I'd like to ask you all a question. How many things in this museum do you think were made with the hands of the Afghans? And there was silence. I knew the answer to that question because I recognized a lot of things in the museum, but I held my peace and, and everyone. There was some other, there was some other uh, international people there, so they were just kind of diddly dad and, and uh, he's kind of tapping his foot and just kind of waiting. Finally, he goes, nothing! <laughs> Not a single thing in this museum was made with the hands of the Afghans. You, the international community, have turned my country into the playground of war. You bring your toys here, and you play, and we suffer. We used to have farmers working our fields, harvesting potatoes with plows. Now, we work our fields with wooden sticks, and we harvest explosives. He said it'd take over 100 years to clear every single landmine out of Afghanistan, working seven days a week. He also said that this museum was a fundraising tool because Afghanistan lacks the infrastructure, medical infrastructure, to pay for prosthetic limbs for everyone who's wounded through the course of doing this and to provide income for family members who are killed. And then he says, I'd like to ask you all one more question. Would anyone like to make a donation? I've never seen so many people scrambling for money in my life. There was wallets and change falling all over the place. This guy was a good fundraiser, I tell you. But his story is very inspiring. This is the first song where I ever tried to sing or channel an Afghan. It's called Playground of War. Sundown, you know. 
out in the fields, my father did so. With sweat on their brow, they plowed through the land. Now with tears in my eyes, I make my stand. One hundred years of backbreaking work. That's what it takes to heal the hurt. Well, they call me a fool, and a fool I must be. But that's what it takes for all to be free. So here I stand in this building so small, a museum awaits to kill a soul. And why do you ask, do I risk my life? My kids and my wife. Not a single toy in this playground of war was made with the hand of the Afghan soldier. And who did I ask to make this the plan? To make me a refugee in my homeland. Oh, 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 oh. Three decades of war we Afghans have had from the USSR to those American lands and a graveyard of empires 
we find ourselves in I'll chasing the ghost of bed now with gentle hands and nerves of steel I dig through the ground so we can all hear and I'm working my fingers straight down to the bone The difference I make in this place I call home. Oh. Okay, so some of this stuff is a little heavy. <laughs> and my, my goal tonight is not to cry. Yes. I, I almost lost it. I, I was honest. just about to say <laughs> a very important part of healing from war is allowing yourself to grieve. And it took me a long time to come to that. But a very wise medicine woman from here in Arkansas actually told me that grief is pain trying to leave the body. And if you don't let it leave, it can cause all kinds of dis-ease to occur around the body. So through the course of tonight, at any time, if you feel like you need to grieve or cry, please, please do that. That's what this is for. And so we can get together and in some ways start the healing process from these wars. We're all affected by this. We're all touched by it. And we all have to heal from it. So please grieve with us. On that note, this next song that we're going to do, Adam's going to perform it solo because I still can't sing it without crying. I can't make it through the song. I've had four or five months with this song and I still can't do it. I want to tell you, this was one of, um, I can't remember how many, six or seven songs I think I did with Possum. Not all of them are on the album, but uh, I 
this was somewhere towards kind of the end, the last couple songs, I think. And I don't think that I realized that throughout the uh, writing process, I didn't realize how emotionally invested I was in each song that I was doing. I found myself, you know, in uh, Jacob's shoes. <laughs> I had to really think about it. Uh, I found myself in Jacob's shoes as well as uh, the Afghan's shoes and uh, in, in a place that I don't think, especially as a songwriter, but even as just an individual, I don't think I'd ever been in that position before. And it was very uh, uh, emotional for me, but I don't think I realized how deep it, it really went until I did the song. And when I gave it to him, it was, I, I mean, when I played it, I, 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 I wrote it in an hour, I'll be honest. He told me the story and I went home and uh, wrote the song in about an hour and, and I called him and I said, come over. And he came over and I played him the song and I was so, I mean, I was in tears when I played the song. I couldn't hardly make it through it. And um, so it was a very strange feeling for me to be so emotionally invested in a, in a song and then hand that off and totally forget about it because I've got to go into the next song. Keep going, keep going, keep going because I only have a limited amount of time. So it was very weird. Um, which brings me to my next statement of I haven't really played this song all the way through <laughs> since the night that I played it with Poshlin that very first time. That's really the last time I actually played the song. I told him that I tried to play it a couple weeks later uh, when everything was kind of said and done. I, I tried to play it just because I enjoyed it. It was a good song. And I just couldn't do it <laughs> because I, I, my emotion wasn't in the right place, you know. It's I've got a recording actually. He would he would come up with a song and then I would record it uh, and try to transpose what what was happening on guitar on the banjo and it it didn't always come out that way. But <laughs> do do what I could, uh, but uh, the the end of this recording, all you could hear is both of us going. <laughs> <laughs> and I went back to listen to it and we're just both sitting in his living room sobbing our heads off and, and trying to talk to each other while we're crying like, oh, it's so good, it's so good. <laughs> and I forgot to turn the recorder off I was just so <laughs> such a state of grief and sobbing so there's just like 10 minutes of us crying on my phone I still got it <laughs> I'll make this song, the story real quick because we're, we're doing a lot of rambling. But basically, a couple of days after the Landmine Museum, the boys were like, Jacob, we got to take you somewhere. And I was like, okay. It felt like this every day, actually. And uh, I was like, where are we going? We're like, well, we're going to a hospital. It's a special hospital. It's a, an NGO, a non-governmental organization. Uh, and it's called emergency, and they only treat war wounds. So you have to be very seriously wounded to get into this place. Burns, stabs, amputated limbs, very serious stuff. So this is in the middle of Kabul, the capital city of Afghanistan. So we go to this hospital. It's got these big walls around it. There's madness everywhere. It's, it's, Kabul is like playing, driving in Kabul is like playing bumper cars with over a million people. It's an interesting thing. So we go into this place, and all of a sudden there's this real serene energy. There's beautiful flowers and grass everywhere. And, and there's Afghan men laying all over the place, missing different parts of their body. But they're supporting each other, carrying each other around, and so on. And it was really intense to see, but 
but it was good for me to see. And the kids at Our Way, they spoke Dari, which was the main language that they were using in that area. And uh, they also speak very well uh, English, so they were translating a lot. We were gathering the stories of these people and how they were wounded and where they were wounded and so on. Uh, and there was this big building inside this complex. And they're like, that's the, that's the critical room. That's where all the people are that, that uh, are in serious condition. We, we wanted to go in there. And I was like, okay. So we go up to the door of this building and they open it. And it just, the smell of death just comes out immediately. It just hits me in the face. It's really intense. So we walk in this building and it's just full of, of some men are crying and some are moaning and some are laying there in silence. And I look over to my right and there's this Afghan uh, man with a big smile on his face, like ear to ear. He's got to be 50, 60 years old. That's old over there. And uh, uh, he has his bandage over his abdomen and there's big red marks coming off of his side. He's Obviously there's an infection. You can see the streaks going around the side. And he smiles at me. He looks at me in the eyes. And uh, I smiled back. And he, uh, he reached up his, his arms to give me a hug and he didn't have any hands. And uh, I couldn't move. I froze. And the boys, they could kind of tell what was going on, so they went over there and hugged him and started talking to him and so on. But uh, I couldn't touch a single person in that room. I still feel like shit to this day because of that. But uh, like I said, I was a farmer, and it was as if I couldn't touch the fruit of my labor. And it's a very, I still have dreams about it and think about it all the time, so... That's the, the story I told Adam to set the stage for this song.
fruit of my labor laid out on a table emergency song and then we're going to take a break and if you haven't uh, uh, picked up on the theme this first set of music is basically taking you to Afghanistan right the songs are about the experience of war and so on so we're going to take a break after this uh, and the next set is going to be about coming home from Afghanistan it's about reintegration it's about PTSD it's about what happens after the war which will, when you hear it, it's pretty self-explanatory. But um, first of all, I'd like to thank Jay. He, he's not possum to me, he's Jay. So thank Jay for uh, yeah, in, inviting me to play with he and, and Jordan and the rest of the band tonight. It's, it's a real honor. And by the way, we have performed before. He either forgot or, you know, how me in selective remembering. Where, where was Just it? Don't, the third grade talent show. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Hey, does this ring a bell? Okay. <laughs> we played the theme from Beverly Hills Cop, okay? We didn't win, but hey. That was our first performance. Okay, I remember that. Yeah, so I thought so. Okay. Anyway, um, since he was a very, very young child, probably a toddler even, I realized that Jay had some very strong leadership capabilities. 
And he also had a very strong will to go his own way and follow his own heart, no matter what the rest of the world or mom or dad said. <laughs> and it's always been my prayer that he would realize those gifts and that he would use those qualities to bring about positive change and to help people. And when I heard Soldier's Heart, I knew a, a prayer of a mother's heart had been answered. soldier's heart that you and everyone you touch with it um, gains healing and peace. Notice we have a new bass player up here. Hey, I want to say something since he's standing right here on stage. Just, I know we're running late. Uh, it's my mouth. But uh, uh, Kelly, I, I, I wasn't involved in any of the recording process. I had to leave town before the recording even started. So I helped him write some songs, then I left town. And, uh, and then I only heard, a couple months later, I finally heard something. But anyways, when I heard the finished product, I, it was so shocking for, for me to hear that final product of it. And it was the most beautiful thing that, I'd, that it ever went through my ears. I mean, it was just so amazing to, A, have been involved in it, and, and B, just to hear a beautiful piece of artwork uh, that, with such a, an extreme, uh, beautiful message. But anyways, I just want to say that Kelly did an absolutely amazing and wonderful job on that. And he deserves that's everything I was going to say, so thanks, Adam. Thank you. No, it's good. It's saving me some throat here. Uh, okay, so this next song, like Bob said, is called Childhood Side. And I'm going to spit it out as fast as I can, the story. Uh, so we had come home from the hospital that day, the emergency hospital, and uh, we went to this building uh, where we were staying, and, and uh, sometimes when I felt a little overwhelmed, I'd go up onto the roof of the building and, and hang out and, and just uh, get away from everyone. No one ever came on top of the building. So I was up there that day laying on the building and uh, watching kites fly all over uh, the city, and if... Uh, if you know anything about Afghanistan, you know the Afghans are really good at flying kites. Everyone knows how to fly kites there. I'm convinced even the goats know how to fly kites there. <laughs> so I was sitting back just watching these kites go all over. And they have big kite battles. They like put sharp things on the end of the stream close to the kites, like glass and stuff. And they try to snip each other's kites out. So they're not just flying them. They're like doing backflips and cutting people out of the sky and... And the baddest mojo on the block has the, the kite in the sky. He still has a kite. Any kite gets close to it, he gets it. So I was watching this go all over the place. It's beautiful. They build their kites there, and they're amazing. 
And I saw this kite flying close to the building. I thought, man, that's, that person's got to be down there in the street. So I lay back down, and I was watching stuff all over the place. I looked up, and I saw that kite flying right over me. And I thought, my gosh, that guy's got to be standing on this building. So I looked back down, and there's the stream. It's dragging across the roof. Getting close to the edge, and I was like, oh, my gosh. So I got up, and I ran as fast as I could. I snatched that thing right before I went over the edge. So here I am, shirtless. I'm covered in tattoos. I, I do not look like an Afghan, by the way, with, without my shirt on in public. And I'm dangling on the side of this building, holding on to a kite. So I've never flown a kite in my life, so I'm jumping up and down and screaming. And, oh, my God. It just happens to be in the middle of Ramadan, so everyone is down in, in the courtyard. They're fasting. They're already a little upset because they're not eating all day or drinking water, and and uh, and uh, they're looking up at me like I'm a crazy person, and, like, and rightfully so. And uh, so I'm just going hooting and hollering, cots flying all over the place. And I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm doing it. Uh, and then the wind dies down, and the kite just starts to flounder and flounder and then whoop, right in the middle of the courtyard where all these men are, are praying. And <laughs> so they finish what they're doing and then, you know, they're looking at me like, what are you doing landing a kite in the middle of us? Everyone knows how to fly a kite. You had to have done that on purpose, right? <laughs> so some of them walk over to the kite and they pick it up and they're like jumping and throwing it in the air trying to get me to fly it. And I don't know, I'm jumping too with the string. <laughs> I don't know how to do this. So I just I put the string down and put something on it and I go back to my mat and, and I lay down for a second. And I look up and there's two men my age on the roof in the doorway. Never seen anyone up there. They're looking at me smiling, but they're you know, kind of testing it. They know if they should come out there or not. And I was like, Waved them in. They didn't speak English, and I didn't speak uh, Dari. So they come onto the roof, and, and they, they signal over towards the kite string. One was smiling really big. It was a beautiful man. And he, uh, he starts walking over to him. I'm like, yeah, go ahead. And he, he walks over and picks up the string and, and uh, looks over at me and kind of smirks. <laughs> Yells something out and tugs on it like three times and pfft, takes off like a rocket. <laughs> he looks back at me laughing. He's flying his thing all over the place. He's doing cartwheels and backflips. He's not even looking at me. <laughs> so basically, the long story short, short this guy was, he was trying to teach me how to fly a kite. And if I, that was very, that was really, it was crushing in a way similar to the experience in the emergency hospital because if this person only knew where I come from and what I've done, he probably wouldn't be doing that. Or hell, he might. I don't know that. But the fact is, I went back to Afghanistan uh, to see what I could do to help Afghans. And what happened every single day was Afghans helped me heal my soul. So this song's called Child Inside. Thank you. 
Army Cadence sing-alongs in it. I feel like this one really sets the stage for going into this set of music about PTSD and war trauma and how these things work. It's called Mama Mama Can't You See What the Army's Done to Me. So this is a call and response. So basically I'll sing something and there'll be a dead space for you to sing it back to me. That's how we did it when we were marching down the road. It was like, whoa, ho, ho, ho. Okay, good, good. That's enough practice. We can do this.
So, a lot of my uh, PTSD stems from something that I call moral injury, meaning that I've been morally injured by war. That means my soul has been dramatically affected by participating in the process of war. Some people think in order to be wounded from war, you have to, you have to be shot or burned or, or in some way take on a, some type of physical trauma or that you have to participate in combat. But that doesn't line up with what I see most of the time when I'm talking with vets. A lot of vets who are suffering from PTSD never saw combat. They never left the base. Heck, some of them never even left the United States and they still have PTSD. This song really comes from that experience. I went to go see my brother play down at Tanglewood, south side of town. <laughs> you don't go down there too often. <laughs> and uh, uh, Alan, yeah. isn't it? Mandolin player? Yeah. Alan uh, said, hey, I got a cousin here who's an Afghan vet. He's kind of struggling. Would you talk with him? I said, sure. No problem. So I went over the, to the bar to, to have a chat, and uh, he said, hey, man, can I buy you a beer? And in vet language, that's let's talk about stuff. So I listened to his story for a while, and he was with the 188th Fighter Wing down in Fort Smith, Arkansas. And they service and fly A-10 aircraft out of that base and he told me he went to Afghanistan and he didn't leave the base but he spent most of his time loading munitions on A-10s and doing maintenance on them and they would take off with all this stuff and they'd come back and, and they wouldn't have it on there it was oh, about 8,000 pounds worth of explosives and uh, he said he watched that happen over and over, and it really started to wear on him. And when he got back, he started having trouble sleeping. And it really hit him in a hard way that just participating in this war had dramatically affected his soul, had dramatically affected him as a person. And I think this story in particular is a really good example of how you don't even have to go to war to wind up with PTSD. And that's where we want to wind up with the VA and healthcare for veterans in this country. Because currently the VA doesn't like to, to acknowledge that you have war wounds unless you've actually been in combat. But the reality is just going through basic training can give you PTSD. Weaponizing the soul is what happens, and that could give you all kinds of issues. So this song is called The 188. It's about this guy's unit.
ever heard that, that phrase, support the troops? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of us veterans like to take these phrases that are popular and turn them into something that falls in line with how we see the world and what we believe. And we really do want people to support the troops. So we like to say support the troops in the wars. And we put all kinds of fancy things after that phrase, but it's a real popular thing. And, and we believe that people want to support the troops. We just don't know how to do that as a nation. So this next song is how I would like people to support me as a troop. Uh, I wrote it as a poem and uh, uh, turned it into a song for this album because it just seemed to fit. We just need to support the troops is what they tell me. Well, this is coming from a troop, so listen carefully. What we need are teachers who understand the history of this country. What we need is a decent living wage. People ain't cold and hungry. What we need are bicycle trails across this beautiful nation. What we need are trees and less playstations. What we need is a justice system that seeks the truth. What we need are more books and less boots. What we need is love for every woman and man. Southern Louisiana to the mountains of Afghanistan. Now it's true, the truth need support, the support to come home. We need a treatment in jobs and love for the soul. A love for the soul. You see, a war ain't no And we're gonna bring war to an end. 
to undid the same. PTSD publicly because I didn't it wasn't until the past year and a half that I started admitting that I actually had PTSD and that really is a shame because I hurt quite a few people while I had not acknowledged my war wounds and that's one of the things that the Afghan kids help me realize if they're this affected by war, then I have to allow myself to be that affected. If I'm going to acknowledge how much they've suffered, I've got to acknowledge that in myself. And there's quite a few people here tonight that I think I've heard along the way of trying to figure this out. And I really appreciate you all being here to listen to this. So this next song is kind of a heavy one. It's a poem by a veteran, post 9-11 veteran. Uh, it's called They Call Me Son, They Call Me Hero. And the first time I read this poem, I was struck because it sums something up that I hadn't come to understand yet or be able to articulate. I knew it was happening inside of me, but I didn't know how to talk about it. And when we go off to war, sons and daughters, uh, we go through this profound transformation, basically. And when we come back home, our families, our communities, everyone's still treating us as if we're the person that we were before we went through this. Son, Jacob, Possum, Jay, whichever one. <laughs> and, uh, but the deal is I, I wasn't really that person anymore. I had gone through things that had reshaped me, that had recalibrated my soul. But I also felt like I wasn't this hero that my country was projecting on me either. So I really felt stuck in between these two points. Like I'm not this person that my family is projecting on me. I'm also not this thing that my country is projecting on me. I'm neither of those things anymore, and I'm stuck somewhere in between. And we all experience this to some degree, but being stuck in that space makes you very anxious. And it makes you very upset. It can make you very angry. It can be hard to interact with people in this world when... It feels like no one's ever acknowledging who you are. They're expecting you to be this other thing. So I felt like this poem like really wrapped up that experience. PTSD is a hard thing to talk about. It's this big nebulous idea and there's all these little things attached to it. But we're getting closer. <laughs> and I think this song helps. It helped me out. But to me, 
song is the title track on this album. It's called Soldier's Heart. 
said earlier, soldier's heart is a Civil War term for post-traumatic stress disorder. And I find it to be the most fitting term for what I feel like I'm struggling with. I feel like my heart was broken. And part, of, part of where that comes from is, is, the, is the contract that I signed when I joined the military. I call it a sacred contract. Because this contract is signed <coughs> literally. But you also speak words with intent. And when I say the word sacred, I mean something that's done with intention. So we have a very specific intent when we sign this contract with our souls, this sacred contract. And that intention is protection. Now, the contract of protection has been signed by a soul since before war existed. It's an ancient thing. And a lot of us join with the intention of fulfilling this contract to protect. Not to protect international interests, to protect greed, to protect any of these things. Just to protect. It's what you do with the contract. It's what you tell us to protect. That's what we go do. So I really felt like my contract was ever fulfilled. And part... Part of this work right now, what I'm doing is trying to fulfill that contract, to try to heal that in myself. And I like to relate this to marriage, because in marriage you do the same thing, and most people understand this. You sign something and you speak words with very specific intent to another person, making it a sacred contract, a contract with intention. And if you've ever been in a situation like that where your partner lied to you and cheated on you and emotionally abused you and physically abused you and took advantage of you, then you understand what it's like to be a veteran. Because that's basically how I feel about my service. Now, some of it I'm proud of and what I accomplished and who I am obviously has done a great deal for me, but there's still pieces of it that aren't acknowledged and this song is really a song about a broken heart. Just a father from Arkansas There's a lot of things I don't understand Like why we sent farmers To kill farmers In Afghanistan Now I did what Told for my love of this land, 
Every 
Yeah, could you imagine every time, if, you're, if you've divorced, you can put yourself in this headspace. Every time you leave the house, you've got to see your, this person that you've divorced yourself from. Everywhere you go in this country, there's a flag flapping somewhere reminding you. And you just can't get away from it. You wonder why a lot of veterans kind of go live out in the middle of the woods somewhere and avoid talking to people or interacting with people. It's a constant reminder. All right, I really appreciate y'all sticking around as long as you have. It, it takes some endurance. This is the last song, by the way. Uh, and it requires a little participation. So... This next song is about rite of passage. It's about earning your stripes. I did a ceremony uh, last fall, right before we got ready to engage in this project, uh, with a fella by the name of Crazy Dog. And he's a, a Native American uh, warrior who has taken it upon himself to put us veterans through what he calls the warrior dance. Now, I think that alone is, is worth chewing on because here you have these people who have had everything taken from them. And they are now stepping up with their medicine and their power and doing whatever they can to help us heal. I think that's very profound. So Crazy Dog was a Marine. And we gathered to do this warrior dance, and it was in a men's conference. It was only men, and he took all the vets aside, and he was like, look, I need you to tell me some answers to the questions I'm going to ask, and we're going to paint your face according to what you say. That tells everyone what you've done. And then we're going to dance into this middle, into the middle of a big ring of men who are not veterans, they're supporters, and they're going to listen to your story. And it doesn't matter if this takes all week. Every single one of you says what you have to say, and they listen. He said this is really important for our people, because when we send our warriors out, we know they're dramatically altered through what we ask them to go do. So we do not let them reintegrate without going through some type of ceremony. Because they can bring this sickness back in to our society, to our tribe, and it can become systemic. It can spread everywhere. So he says, in order for this ceremony to be complete and to do what it needs to do, everyone who is responsible for asking them to fulfill the sacred contract of protection has to hear what they did so they can own what they asked them to go do. And that helps them feel like they have some ownership in the process of war. Also, it helps them understand who these people are now. Because if they just have to keep it inside, if these warriors have to keep it inside and don't get to share their gospel or their narrative, the people around don't understand what's going on inside of them. 
and it becomes contagious. These symptoms of PTSD, the reactionary behavior, the anger, the, the uh, lack of emotional intelligence or intuition, these things can become contagious if, if you're at the head of a family unit, if you're a father, or mother, sister, brother, you know, everyone in the family, although they don't have PTSD directly, they call it secondary PTSD, or as Crazy Dog called it, the spirit, the generational curse. What happens is everyone who loves you and interacts with you has to, to some degree, react to your behavior. So, do you having PTSD and having all these symptoms, these reactionary symptoms, everyone around you has to react to it and generates the symptoms as well. Now, they could keep their peace, they could be quiet, they could ignore it, they could walk away, they could get mad with you, but all those things are a reaction to PTSD when somebody's going through it with you. So, tacitly, you take it on. Western medicine calls it secondary PTSD. It has many names. You don't have to go to war to experience this. We all share this with each other. So this is a very powerful thing that we went through. And it's obviously something we don't practice in this country. I think if we look at the U.S. government uh, and the domestic and foreign policy, it, it has almost every sign and symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder. It's very aggressive. It's very reactionary. It's violent. It's very polarizing, meaning you can't really see the gray in between. You can only see black and white. That's a classic sign of PTSD. It's also lacking in emotional intelligence and emotional intuition. So I don't think we have to go too far to look at the reality of how PTSD is a systemic thing that can spread through a society. Because if we look at our government and how it, how it conducts itself on the domestic and international stage, it has all the symptoms. It has penetrated our society. On a positive note, though, this thing we go through in war is a transformative process. This is a really old ceremony, right? This trauma, in essence, is transformation. It's going through some event that you can never turn back from. You can never go back to the person you were before you experienced that event. That's trauma. But that's also transformation. Where things get sticky with PTSD and war trauma in particular is that that's never handled ceremoniously. And people aren't allowed to honor their trauma as a transformative event because they're never allowed to tell their story for the most part in this country and people aren't ready to take responsibility for it. So a lot of us veterans are just kind of stuck waiting to transform. And people like Crazy Dog are running around and they know this. And they're doing everything that they can to try to help us out because they know that we're all in this together, right? If we're sick, everyone else is going to be sick. But if we're really healthy, we can make a lot of awesome things happen. Like Thich Nhat Hanh, for example, a Vietnamese monk, says that, that uh, if the veterans are healed properly, I'm paraphrasing, that they could become the tip of the spear in, in leading the healing of a nation. So this could go both ways. A very powerful thing. And I do honor the fact that, that I've gone through a powerful transformation through war. Like, I'm a peace activist because I went to war. If I wouldn't have gone to war, that wouldn't have happened. But it took this entire community to help me heal and to get to this point. Like, writing songs with Adam. Like, my mother and my brother being very supportive to me. Like, Fayetteville standing up and saying, hey... 
we're going to support you as you ride your bicycle around the country. All of those things were crucial elements in my healing process, and it takes a community to heal the veteran. But in return, the veteran can help heal the community. So this song is about that rite of passage into warriorhood and fulfilling that contract and taking that responsibility on. And I have to stand up to play it because it gets kind of exciting. I didn't know that. That's exciting. <laughs> I can't get too excited. I don't have much voice left, but I'm going to try. So... <coughs> After that ceremony, I went and talked to old Crazy Dog. And I wanted to know more about what he was doing. And he said, Jacob, I have to honor you for something. Your story about Afghanistan and going back, all those things. That, those are the marks of a warrior. I thought that was very profound that he went on to explain to me the difference between a soldier and a warrior. And that's what this song's about. If y'all don't know, I work with an organization called the Rock Veterans Against the War, also Veterans for Peace, Vietnam Veterans Against the War, many veterans organizations that challenge the narrative of war because we feel like we've been morally injured through war and our anti-war work, in a way, is a symptom of moral injury meaning our PTSD stands for being morally injured. And our challenging of the narrative of war is us trying to heal our souls. Not everyone has this moral bearing, obviously. Otherwise, we'd have millions of veterans mobilizing the way that we do right now. But through time and healing, I think it could grow. So my veteran brothers and sisters, I decided we were going to Go through a warrior ceremony. And that's where the song comes in. You see, there's a difference between a soldier and a warrior. A soldier is loyal. A soldier is technically and tactically proficient. And a soldier follows orders. Now, a warrior ain't so good at following orders. A warrior has empathic understanding with the enemy. A warrior follows the heart. Now, at any time through the course of this song, you feel the desire to scream, Amen, brother. <laughs> or hallelujah, brother. Please do so. There we go. Yeah, we got to church this up. We got to go out on a good note. So... A warrior has empathic understanding with the enemy, so much so that the very thought of causing pain or harm to the enemy causes pain or harm to the warrior. You see, a warrior understands that we fight to make a stand, no matter the injustice we might see. And I'm telling you that's nothing but the truth. I'll be the best a warrior I could be. There we go. 
Well, my veteran sisters and brothers and I found out that NATO generals were going to be meeting in Chicago in early 2012. And we thought we'd give them the opportunity to honor us as warriors by returning our medals. <laughs> by showing we have empathic understanding with the enemy. So we got a hold of them and we let them know what we wanted to do. And we wanted to ceremoniously return them. And we wanted them to ceremoniously receive them. Well, they refused. So we decided we were going to have to march straight to the gates of that summit and throw them back. Because we were seeking a rite of passage into warriorhood. And we wanted to show the world that this country still has warriors. It was a hot and sunny day in Chicago as we lined up to march down the road. With 20,000 strong, there was enough to go wrong as we sang songs through every barricade. Now, I held my head high as I marched beside my sisters and brothers and all. If there's no better day than the day that we marched to the gates of the NATO barricade, I say now a warrior.
Thank you for listening to this episode of How I Embraced the South. If you enjoyed the show, tell a friend. And as my Girl Scout den mother used to say, stay frosty. song with the crowd every once in a while because because when we sing together we breathe together right we're exhaling together like ah. <laughs> and then in between we're all, <gasps> we're all gasping for breath